is a character that has been behind the scenes of many recent objects here on the podcast. The model of the USS Forrestal, Captain McGrath's POW memorabilia, Admiral Lawrence's POW bracelet. Do you know who ties all of these objects together? On this episode of A History of the Navy in 100 Objects, we are joined by the man whose story weaves together much of recent Navy history, Senator John McCain. Senator McCain graduated the U.S. Naval Academy in 1958 and remembers the mindset with which he entered the fleet. Well, in 1958, the Cold War was certainly um, extremely important to all of the military and the United States. Um, We were implementing what uh, Mr. Kennan described as a containment theory, which meant we had to keep up in the nuclear arms race, but also have significant presence overseas, (coughs) excuse me, particularly in Europe. Um, And from time to time, there were tensions between the United States and and, uh, then Soviet Union. I remember in my first squadron uh, that I was based on board the USS Intrepid, we all had targets uh, in Russia for nuclear weapons delivery and we studied those targets and were prepared to launch on those missions. That's got to be pretty sobering to think about that. Yeah, but when you're young and you are patriotic and you love your job, and it's, it, it, it wasn't too frightening. And of course, when you're that young, you know that nothing bad's ever going to happen to you. Senator McCain earned his aviator wings in 1960, He spent time with his squadrons assigned to the carriers USS Intrepid and USS Enterprise, and later as a flight instructor. He requested combat duty and was assigned to an A-4 squadron, the VA-46 Klansman, aboard the aircraft carrier USS Forrestal. It was on that tour of duty that Senator McCain was involved in the worst carrier fire since World War II. Well, in 1967, the summer of 1967, we were preparing for a large launch that we called Alpha Strikes. It was a large number of aircraft on targets in North Vietnam, and unfortunately, a Zuni rocket um, was had a thing called a pigtail, which was an electrical connector uh, to the <clears throat> end of the Zuni rocket, and unfortunately, uh, safety. Uh, regulations were violated in that they plugged in that to the rocket while the plane was still on the flight deck. It was an F-4 Phantom. And uh, when the pilot went from external to internal power, when the engines of his aircraft were started, a uh, stray voltage uh, went and fired the Zuni rocket across the flight deck. It would take a long time to describe it, but it hit the the fuel tank that was underneath my A-4 Skyhawk, and uh, but the but the rocket itself did not detonate because there's a certain separation before the rocket head is armed. Otherwise, it would have just blown my plane up. Um, fire fuel from the fuel tank, which was underneath my aircraft, uh, spread. Uh, the fire spread. Of course, there was wind across the deck because we were preparing to launch, and that fire spread aft, and uh, I uh, shut down the engine of my airplane. What the A-4, as you may recall, has a very high nose, and a fuel probe uh, uh, from the nose jumped off and, and rolled through 
<clears throat> some of the fire and went on the other side of the flight deck. I turned and I saw the pilot of the plane next to mine try to do the same thing I did, but he slipped and fell and was in the flames. Started back and just then the first bomb exploded. And uh, uh, to make a long story short, uh, 134 brave young Americans died, most of them fighting the fire that day. The Farstall was very, very badly injured. Holes in the flight deck, <clears throat> gasoline pouring down into the hangar deck. It was really a conflagration. I am told the biggest uh, uh, tragedy, uh, disaster of that kind ever, as far as the number of casualties is concerned. The ship was headed back naturally to the United States after we had gone into the Philippines and they came on board and said they were looking for people to transfer over to the Oriskany. It was the summer of 1967 when we were experiencing very heavy losses because we were escalating the war, so I volunteered to transfer over to the Oriskany and uh, then joined an A4 squadron there. It was only a few months later, in October of 1967, that Senator McCain was shot down while flying a combat mission over North Vietnam. He shares with us his recollections of his time as a POW. On the uh, day of the, of the very big strike that I was shot down on, it was the first time we had attacked a target in downtown Hanoi. The target was the power plant. And a friend of mine who was the uh, air wing operations officer said, uh, you better be careful this time and it's going to be dangerous. And I said, uh, don't worry, they'll never get me. <laughs> and so it's a long story, but uh, it was a very hard day. We lost, I think, five aircraft and two other pilots were captured along with me at that time. And uh, it was, uh, it, at that time, and probably to this day, it, from, as far as air defense is concerned, it was the most heavily defended. Because thanks to Robert McNamara, we watched the surface air missiles being offloaded in the port of Haiphong and being transported up and put in place to fire at us, which uh, was certainly a source of frustration to us. And the day before, by the way, I'd been on another strike where we hit the uh, main airfield outside Hanoi and I had been able to take out two MiGs on the ground. But um, so it was a very exciting day and there was lots of missiles in the air. They had surface-to-air missile and concrete concentric rings around Hanoi, so there was lots and lots of uh, missiles in the air that day. Well, first of all, could I mention that I've been to three escape and evasion schools which were directly related to training as to how you behave if you are captured. Um, because during the Korean War, unfortunately, there was a thing called brainwashing, and that is the Chinese captured Americans by the hundreds, and they convinced some of them to take their side through constant lectures and pressures, uh, etc. So because I believe it was 56 American soldiers and Marines decided they wanted to stay in China rather than come to back to the United States, it was really scandalous at the time. So we developed the Code of Conduct, so I was very familiar with the Code of Conduct, and 
knew to some degree what to expect from them as far as efforts to utilize the prisoners as tools, as propaganda tools to further their efforts to win the conflict. And at the Naval Academy, obviously, we knew about the uh, prisoners of uh, the Korean War. Uh, so many of our instructors at the Naval Academy then were Marine captains as well as Navy lieutenants who had fought in Korea. And their experiences, they passed on to us as well. Uh, so um, the main thing about the Naval Academy that uh, is that um, the standards of conduct uh, were instilled in us. And, and I think that that was the first um, awareness that I had had of uh, the prisoner experience. But I must say afterwards, when I was already a pilot, the escape and evasion schools that I attended probably attenuated that, uh, those thoughts and prepared us in some ways. The Vietnamese were different from the Chinese in the Korean War, but <clears throat> we were certainly better prepared because of the Korean experience. Many Americans have forgotten how unpopular the Vietnam conflict was. Uh, marches and demonstrations here in the capital, people refusing to serve, um, and the only seemingly unifying aspect of the conflict was the prisoners of war. And people were, no matter how they felt about the conflict, uh, were supportive of the prisoners of war. And somebody, and I don't know who it was, had the idea for the bracelet. The bracelet um, with the POW's names on them that people wore. I received literally over the years thousands of them back, not hundreds, but thousands of them back that people wore with my name on them. It was incredible. And one of the things that the Vietnamese tried to convince us of was that nobody gave a damn about us, that we were abandoned and forgotten. And so we were stunned when we came out and uh, Tony Orlando and Dawn's song, Tie a Yellow Ribbon, was one of the most popular <laughs> songs in America. And of course, uh, the welcoming was wonderful. In retrospect, many of us who were prisoners felt, feel a little guilty about that because it was far different from the reception that our draftees, 18, 19 year old kids came home and some cases were spat upon and were mistreated and uh, so, but we didn't really know that much about that either. So the, the POW status was really quite uh, remarkable and a unifying, the bracelet was kind of a unifying aspect of a very divisive nation. Uh, the worst day as a POW was the day after I had, not, not today, the worst day I ever had was a few days after I had finally refused the Vietnamese offer to release me. They had tried, and it's a long story, but they had tried to get me to be part of a release of three prisoners uh, and as part of their, quote, goodwill. Actually, it was just propaganda. Uh, and I, after a series of meetings with the head guy, he finally believed that I, that I was not going to accept uh, their offer of release. I told them they can throw me out if they want to, but what they wanted was for me to agree. And then a few days after that, uh, some very severe treatment 
probably really severe treatment began because they were going to get something out of me no matter what. The, the tail breaking my arm and a number of other uh, very harsh treatment. That was the worst day. When you're in prison, particularly when you're, and I spent more than three years in solitary confinement, things go slowly. Uh, you know, just, there, you're not much to your day. So when we were released, everything seemed to be going very quickly and all of these things. Um, and we were really astonished at the uh, warmth of the reception. I mean, it was incredible. And uh, <clears throat> I, I felt happy. I felt uh, glad to be back. I, I knew that the bonds of friendship uh, that I that were developed there in prison were probably going to last the rest of my life, and so um, it was. You know, it's you're, you're very happy, uh, obviously, and frankly, it was like being in a time warp. The, a lot had changed in the five and a half years that I was gone, and none of it had I really kept up with. Uh, we had a loudspeaker in every cell, <coughs> and they would play propaganda. Uh, there was a program called, we called Hanoi Hannah, which was sort of like a Tokyo Rose thing. And also they would play anti-war speeches and publicize like when Jane Fonda came and those kind of things. And I still remember one day I, they were playing a, uh, somebody giving an anti-war speech and didn't pay much attention to it until the guy said, yeah, we can, we can get a man on the moon, but we can't end the war in Vietnam. That was the first that I had heard, that any of us had heard, that we had landed a man on the moon. And uh, so it was certainly a, a moment of great, uh, incredible enthusiasm. And of course, we all tapped on the walls to each other. And it was, it was one of the happier days. Well, my thoughts are that the Naval Academy uh, and I'm sure West Point and the Air Force Academy and the other service academies uh, give you an opportunity to be exposed to a lifestyle that uh, can lead to a degree of patriotism and service that frankly is unique. And that doesn't mean that I in any way denigrate other forms of uh, achieving a military commission because there's many paths. Uh, but the Naval Academy teaches you, I think, uh, many of the fundamentals. That's certainly where I learned mine. Uh, when I ran for President of the United States, uh, our slogan, our campaign slogan, was country first. Uh, as you, I'm sure you're aware, that's sort of a takeoff on duty on our country. And so it has always been the principles that I learned there that have driven my life and my actions. And I haven't always been perfect. In fact, I've made mistakes. But I've always known what was the right thing to do, even though sometimes I didn't always do the right thing. And that, the responsibility for that, I place right, uh, that place on the Severn River. And the friends that ships that I made there, the relationships have lasted throughout the years. And I always look back, despite my very poor academic and disciplinary record, with great appreciation for the principles and values that were instilled in me at the Naval Academy. 
doesn't mean that we come out as perfect individuals. It doesn't mean that you're going to be the next chief of naval operation, although one of you will be. Uh, but it does mean that you've had the opportunity to expose to a unique environment, and you need to make the most of it. Senator McCain also shared with us his favorite piece of Navy history and his take on why learning our Navy history is so important. Well, one of my enduring heroes uh, was, of course, Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt not only brought America into a position of world power, but his major tool for doing so was the United States Navy. But Teddy Roosevelt was a great leader in much broader perspective. He could articulate our obligations as citizens more than and better. And he also was able to articulate America's role in the world and the reason why we're unique and why we are the only force for good, really, when you think about it. And today we are facing challenges unlike we have ever seen in many respects. We now have a terrorist organization that has a base. We now have attacks on the United States of America. We now have a stateless terrorist activities throughout the world. There will be more San Bernardinos. There will be more attacks on the United States of America. And the Naval Academy is a place where we will be training people and adjusting to this new kind of warfare. And we will rely on these young men and women uh, to be the tip of the spear. So I would argue that the Naval Academy and our other service academies are probably more important today than they have been certainly since the end of the Cold War. There's so many things that we need to do to adjust to this new challenge and old challenge at the same time. We see Russia dismembering a European nation for the first time in 70 years. We see the Chinese in gross violation of international law filling in thousands of acres of land and building runways, total violation of international law, showing their ambitions in the Pacific. And of course, we have a layer on top of that, this radical Islamic terrorist organization, which is spreading throughout the, uh, the world. Um, and we have still not achieved any kind of stability in Afghanistan or Iraq. There will be a greater role for special forces. There will be greater role for the SEALs. There will be a kind of unconventional warfare, but at the same time, we can't abandon our challenges of conventional warfare. The new chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Dunford, testified before our committee. Russia is the number one concern that, that he has. Not ISIS, but Russia. And then add the cyber wars that we are now embarked on, which uh, in its extreme could basically shut down every satellite that's up there. We have a multitude of challenges, and we're going to have to have a very highly trained, very professional, very adaptive Navy, ranging from the littoral combat ships to a new kind of submarine and for the triad, and uh, more aircraft carriers and uh, more capabilities uh, to address these challenges. So we're in the most interesting and challenging time and it requires, frankly, it requires leadership along the lines of my role model, Teddy Roosevelt, and Harry Truman. But it also uh, requires a trained, capable, motivated uh, officer corps 
you know, all branches of the service. And the Naval Academy obviously has a sterling record. Thanks for joining us today on the podcast. Check out our past episodes to hear the rest of the stories that Senator McCain spoke about today. We hope to see you next time on A History of the Navy in 100 Objects.